Chapter Ten of Fairy Islands of the South Seas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Benditti. Chapter Ten: Costly Hospitality. For an authentic test of one's capacity for solitude, or better perhaps for convincing proof of the lack of it, two conditions are essential: complete isolation. That goes without saying, of course, and the assurance that such isolation will not be broken into. At Soul Eater's Island, I expected to find both of these conditions fulfilled. My house was four miles from the settlement, but in reality I had no more seclusion there than a hermit whose retreat is within easy walking distance of a summer hotel. Visitors came in canoes, in cutters, and as the pass and the reef on either side of it were a favorite fishing-ground many of them came prepared to spend the day or the night or both it is as well perhaps that the event fell out as it did if life is to keep its fine zest many wished-for experiences must be perpetually unrealized and we perpetually following our alluring phantoms until we tumble headlong out of existence not having been put to the proof, I may still persuade myself that I am a lover of solitude, gifted for the enjoyment of it beyond other men. Meanwhile, at Soul Eater's Island, I had a further experience with Moi Ling, the Chinese storekeeper, which convinced me of very definite limitations in another direction. Sometime after I had taken up residence there, the village came in a body to the adjacent island on the other side of the pass. During the year they moved in this way, from one piece of land to another, collecting the ripe coconuts and making their copra on the spot. The land was not owned in common, but they worked it in common. And as house-building was a simple matter, instead of going back and forth from the village, they erected temporary shelters and remained at each island in turn until the work there was finished. They were not unremitting toilers. After an hour or two of copra-making in the cool of the early morning, they were content to call it a day, and spent the rest of the time at more congenial occupations, swimming, fishing, visiting back and forth, talking forever of the arrival of the last trading scooter and the probable date of arrival of the next one. During all of this time I kept open house, and since I was indebted to nearly all of my friendly visitors for past hospitalities, I felt that it was necessary to make returns. Unfortunately, I had nothing to make returns with except such supplies of provisions and trade goods as I was able to purchase on credit of Moi Ling. Fish were abundant in the lagoon, and a few minutes of fine sport each day more than supplied my wants. But I knew that fish was not acceptable to palates long accustomed to little else. Furthermore, having accepted at the time of my arrival at Rotario the role of the generous, affluent papa, I had to carry it through. As previously related, although I had been left at Rotario unexpectedly, the inhabitants took it for granted that I had plenty of money. The possession of wealth in the form of banknotes is regarded there 
as one of the attributes of a white man, as necessary to his comfort and convenience, and as much a part of him as arms and legs. Pride prevented my disillusioning them at first when I was in desperate need of a new wardrobe, but it got me into a devil of a hole with Moy, and I dug myself in more deeply every day. Having traded upon the native tradition of the mysterious affluence of all white men by opening up a credit account with the Chinaman, I had to sustain his confidence in my ability to cancel it at once if I chose, and feeling inwardly object, it was all the more necessary to maintain a reassuring front in the face of his growing anxiety. It was growing. I could see that. He never actually dunned me, but I escaped the humiliating experience only by making additional purchases on so vast a scale, according to island standards, that even Moy seemed to be awed, for brief periods, into a stupefied acceptance of the mysteriously affluent myth. I myself was awed when I thought of the size of my bill. Trade good carried across thousands of miles of ocean are more than usually expensive. A one-pound tin of bully beef cost nine francs, and other things were proportionately dear. The worst of it was that Moy's stock of supplies was much larger than I had at first supposed. He had a warehouse adjoining his store, which was full of them, and so, with guests making constant demands upon my hospitality, I was forced to buy with the greater abandon as his confidence waned but I returned from these encounters with a washed-out feeling, regretting that I had ever accepted guile as an ally, and longing for relief from a state of affairs which I knew could not continue indefinitely. Relief came in historic eleventh-hour fashion. Providence saved me when I thought pride was riding me to a starry fall. One evening I paddled across to the other island for further supplies. Huirai and his family had been staying with me for several days. Fishing was better on my side of the lagoon pass, he said, but I think his real purpose in coming had been to eat my, or rather moy lings, tinned beef. At any rate, when they returned I had nothing left. It was still fairly early, but no one was abroad in the village street. There was a light at Moy's shop, however, and looking through the open window I saw him sitting at a table, with his adding machine before him. He was counting aloud in Chinese, his long, slim fingers playing skillfully over the wooden beads which slid back and forth on the framework with a soft clicking sound. And as he bent over columns of figures the lamplight filled the hollows of his cheeks and temples with pits of shadow. In repose his face was as expressionless as that of a corpse. I felt my courage going as I looked at it. What chance had I of carrying through successfully this game of beggarman's bluff? How long could I hope to maintain the fiction of affluence before a man wise with the inherited experience of centuries of shopkeeping ancestors? At a moment of panic, and before I realized what I was doing, I had entered the shop and asked for my bill. 
Moy slip-slopped into his back room and returned with a large packet of old newspapers. He was a frugal soul and kept his accounts as he ordered his life, with an eye to avoiding unnecessary expense. The journals were painted over with Chinese characters, the items of my various purchases. He arranged the lists in order, sat down to his counting machine again, and presently gave me the grand total. The amount was something over four thousand francs. Thank heaven for righteous anger. Thank heaven for anger which is only moderately righteous. I knew that I had bought lavishly, but I had kept a rough estimate of the amount of my purchases, and I also knew that Moy had added at least ten percent to his legitimate profit. He had reasoned, no doubt, that a man who bought on mere whim, without asking the price of anything, would settle his obligations as thoughtlessly as he had incurred it. And I would, of course. This was necessary if I were to live up to native tradition in the grand style. But when I saw how costly the game had become, and how thoroughly Moy had entered into the spirit of it, too, I felt indignant, and instead of confessing my predicament as I meant to do, I ordered another case of tinned beef and a bag of rice, and left the shop without further talk. This righteous wrath was all very well, but now that I had asked for my bill, I would have to settle it. How was this to be done? If only I had my sea-chest, which Tino, supercargo of the Caleb S. Winship, had carried away with him when he left me at Riterio. My pocketbook was in it, containing all my money, more than enough to cancel a debt with Moy. I had rather an anxious time during the next few days. I remember entertaining as usual, but in a faint-hearted way, sleeping badly, and between times walking up and down Soul Eater's Island, trying to subdue my pride to a point of confession. Then one afternoon, when I was sitting on the ocean beach, watching the surf piling up on the barrier reef, I became aware of a vessel hull down on the horizon. I could hardly believe my eyes. It was like a far hello from a world which I had almost forgotten existed. All through the afternoon she beat steadily to windward, until at dusk she was about two miles distant and I saw that she was one of the small schooners without auxiliary power which were used by Papiki trading companies for collecting copra at the less profitable atolls. All the village came over to Soul Eater's Island, for the anchorage at this end of the atoll lay just behind it. The schooner was recognized. It was the Poti Ravavera, which visited the atoll about once a year. She entered the pass with the turn of the tide lighting her way by the fire which was burning in a primitive galley, a tin-lined box half-filled with sand. I could see her native skipper at the wheel, a couple of sailors preparing to take in sail, and two native women sitting on the poop, with a great large pile of luggage behind them. One of them was Tapera, daughter of Pauri, chief of the atoll, who had been sent to Protestant school at Papati nearly a year ago. The other was Towara, her aunt with whom she had been living there. The crowd on the beach waited in deep silence while the schooner anchored and the sails were being furled. I remember that I could hear very plainly the fall-off rumbling of the surf 
on the windward side of the atoll, and the hissing of frying fish, or whatever it was, a native boy was cooking at the galley fire. Then the small boat was lowered, and the women brought ashore with their luggage. Tapera went at once to her father, and putting her head on his shoulder, began to cry softly. Not a word was spoken. Tavara and Pora, her sister, squatted on their heels close by, their arms around each other, moaning in the same softly audible way. The women then went in turn among all the relatives, having their little cry, while the rest of the village looked on in sympathetic silence. When they had finished, a fire was lit on the beach, and everyone gathered around to hear the news and to examine the schooner's cargo, which was being put on shore. More trade goods for more ling, I thought. Remembering my debt, I couldn't summon any great amount of interest in the scene. I was about to return to my house when Hari came bustling up, carrying my sea-chest. "'You like this?' he said. What he meant was, "'Is this yours?' But for once he misused his English with splendid relevancy. I sat down weakly on the box, holding a letter which he had thrust into my hand. No doubt of it. It was my box, and the letter was addressed to me in Tino's familiar handwriting. It read in part as follows. We have just met with a Poti Rivera here at Hao. She is going to Riterio within a few weeks, so I'm sending your sea chest by her. Sorry I left you in the godforsaken hole, but I was tight that evening and pretty mad at the way you upset my plans with your marble-playing foolishness. Next morning, when I sobered up, I felt like going back for you, but we had fair wind and I had my cargo to think of. The price of copra is on the downgrade, and I've got to get back to Papati with mine before the bottom falls out of the market. You said once you wanted to see all you could of life in the Pomotas. Well, I guess you'll have your chance at Riterio. If I was you, I would come back on the P. Rivera. She only carries twenty-seven tons cargo, so she'll probably go direct to Papati from there. I'm also sending you an empty ten-gallon demijohn. Fill this with water before you leave. If you come back on the P.R. Mitty, her skipper is a good sailor, but all he knows about navigation you could write on a postage stamp. I met him once about twenty miles south of Fakinhea. He was cruising around looking for Antagotu, which was seventy miles to the northeast. Well, he can't miss Tahiti if he gets within a hundred miles of it, so you better take a chance and come back with him. But don't forget to carry your own supply of fresh water. Sometimes these little native boats get becalmed, and it's no joke being thirsty at sea. Yours, Tino. P.S. Meaty has a big bunch of letters for you, from your friend Nordo. I saw the packet. It looks as though it had been traveling some. Nordo, he says, is in Tahiti again. I'll probably see him there and will tell him to wait for you. Give my regards to all your marble players. Good old Tino. He did me nothing but good turns. Late that night, when the rest of the villagers had crossed the pass, I pried open the lid of the chest, having lost a key, and found my belongings just as I had left them, my camera, my binoculars, and charts. And most important of all, in the bottom of the chest, wrapped in a pair of trousers, my pocketbook. 
I didn't pay Moy until just before the departure of the schooner, and staged the final episode at an hour when his shop was filled with loungers. I came away with his receipted bill, one hundred and twenty francs, and the consciousness of having adequately safeguarded tradition. We left Rotario the following day. I did not realize until the moment of leave-taking how painful the farewells would be. As soon as they were over, I went on board, crawled into the little cabin, and, despite the cockroaches and copra-bugs, remained there until the schooner had left the pass and was well out to sea. After our separation at Papati, Nordolf went on to the southwest. He wrote me from an island he called Ahu-Ahu, and from there, apparently, he took passage to Rorotonga, the principal island of the Cook Group. Long before the discovery of New Zealand, Rorotonga was the goal of Polynesian mariners from the north and west, fearless explorers, traveling in their double canoes across hundreds of leagues of ocean. Guided by sun and stars, some of them arriving at their destination, many others, doubtless, perishing in search of it. From Samoa, in the early centuries of our era, came the Karakana family to reign in Rorotonga down to the present day, and Samoa is believed to have been the principal starting point of the voyagers which peopled the eastern Pacific. In the language of those old-time voyagers, Tonga meant south, and they gave that name to the friendly islands. Further to the west and south they came upon the Cook group. In those days, no doubt, the southernmost ends of the earth, and the high island of this group, the faint blot on the horizon which led the canoes to land, they called Rorotonga, under the south. End of chapter 10